Well, good morning. Uh, some of you may or may not know uh, our friends uh, Emily and Perry Wance. They come here to our first service, uh, and some of you may not be aware that Perry passed away yesterday morning. So uh, if you have opportunity uh, to reach out to Emily uh, throughout this week and just express your love, your sympathies to her, uh, I'm sure she would appreciate that. Uh, we are continuing in this series. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty confident that this is going to be the last one. I'm still praying through uh, what I want to do in a couple weeks. Uh, I feel like God's leading me towards something different, but we'll see how that goes. So today might be the last minor prophet that we look at. It might not be. But we're going to look at Nahum today. And what I'd like to do is just start with a grievance. That's fun, right? We'll start with a grievance. People enjoy that. Uh, my grievance is this. It's happened to me several times. I, I, I don't like it. My beef is with whoever came up with the marketing strategy of the free preview. I hate it. It's not nice. It goes like this. Hey, you can watch the first season of this really cool new show for free. Oh, well, thank you. That's very nice of you. Well, how do you like the new show? Well, I like it very much. Would you like to know what happens in season two? Yes, I would like to know what happens. That's great. All you have to do is buy the Plus subscription, and you can find out what happens in season two and to all the characters that you've just invested whatever amount of time in. But I don't want another subscription. Oh, well, that's too bad. I guess you'll just have to live with the tension of not knowing what happened all of these people in season one. I hate the free preview. Maybe you felt that way after our series ended in Jonah. Some of you probably felt that way. It was like season one just ended. And we don't know what happened to Jonah. We don't know what happened to the Ninevites. So we're coming back because I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is there is a season two to the story of the Ninevites. The season two is recorded for us in Nahum, and we're going to look at it today. Here's the bad news. Bad news is that we don't know any more about what happened to Jonah, and the storyline of the Ninevites does not end well, just so a little uh, heads up where we're headed. It's, it's not going to end like what we would hope their storyline would end. So I'm going to ask if you would, grab your Bible and open it up to Nahum. If you don't know where Nahum is, if you didn't know Nahum was a book in the Bible, that's okay. No judgment. You can use your table of contents in your Bible. That's uh, perfectly appropriate. If you are going to grab one of the Bibles there in the pew or in front of you in one of the chairs, it is page 662 in the Old Testament. I'll give you a minute to find Nahum while you're looking for that. Let me just give you a little bit of background on Nahum the prophet. You ready? We don't know anything about Nahum the prophet. That's not entirely true. We do know where he lived. Uh, verse 1 says that Nahum lived in Elkosh. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Where's Elkosh? We don't know. We don't know where Elkosh is. Uh, there are some scholars who think that it is in modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Uh, but there are other scholars who say, no, no, it's Capernaum. So there's, it's not even close. Those two places aren't even close to one another. 
So we're not sure well where Elkosh was, but we know that Nahum was, uh, was from there. We also know that God used Nahum to proclaim the destruction of Nineveh. And if you were with us during our series on Jonah, you hear that, and you're like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, what? Why is Nineveh going to be destroyed? I thought Nineveh repented. I thought God spared Nineveh. Yes, but unfortunately, that change of heart towards God only lasted about a generation. Isn't that sad? It was basically that group of, of that generation, that group, and uh, once you get beyond them in history, they started drifting back towards their wicked ways. That's what chapter 3 of Nahum is all about. Nahum, chapter 3, is the why. Why are they going to be destroyed? And we see throughout history that after that generation, that after the big revival, uh, they began to drift back to their wicked ways, and uh, the bloodthirst and the torture of, of their enemies, the idolatry, the pride, it all, it all came back. They attacked and took control of the northern kingdom of Israel, and they tried to do the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah, but at that time, God sent an angel to fight for Judah, and listen to this, 185,000 Assyrians died. Now, you'd think that would get your attention. Sadly, it, it did not get their attention. It wasn't enough to rattle them into repentance again. And so God declared their destruction through the prophet Nahum. So the why is in chapter 3. The how is in chapter 2, the how of their destruction. So it's about 150 years after Jonah, after the big revival of Nineveh, and we find ourselves in the year 612 B.C. when this prophecy of Nahum was fulfilled. It was fulfilled through the Medes and the Babylonians who got together and said, let's work together and destroy the Assyrians. Let's work together and we'll, we'll take down Nineveh. And that's exactly what they did. Not the ending to the story that we hoped for. Now, Jonah might have grinned. Jonah might have cheered when Nineveh fell if he had been alive when that happened. But I would say this, even though we know Assyria got what they deserved, I mean, we, we could be honest about that, they got what they deserved, but I don't know, there's something uh, about their story, especially uh, through Jonah and, and the big revival, there's something about that story that I, I personally would rather have seen season two of their storyline uh, be a, a, this continuation of a, a nation that surrendered to God and continued to surrender to God throughout their history. I, I would have rather had that been the storyline. I'd say the same thing about our own national storyline. I, I don't know how we would want to classify this. Uh, I don't know if we would say we're in season two or if we're in season three of our national storyline. But I don't like where the storyline's been going. Our national storyline desperately needs a big revival like the days of Jonah. Because if we don't, if we don't experience a big revival like the days of Jonah, 
Well, where does, where does history uh, teach us that our nation will go? Well, to the days of Nineveh after the big revival. I mean, that's, that's just the reality of how history demonstrates itself. That we, as a, as a nation, may very well be uh, moving towards a fall like Nineveh. And I understand, that's not fun to talk about. You didn't come to church this morning, you know, to get bummed out. I, I get that. Uh, maybe the idea of, you know, America falling like every other empire in human history, maybe that makes you uncomfortable. Maybe you think that America is somehow too big, too strong to fail, that God's wrath against our national wickedness would, would never, you know, fall on America. And maybe just the idea of that you know, causes you to feel uncomfortable or bristle or push back. I, I know for some people, even, even some Christians, uh, some people have this hard time reconciling the idea of the love of God and the wrath of God. Those two things don't seem like they can exist in the same space. There is an author named Rob Bell who wrote a book years ago called Love Wins. Don't buy it. It's garbage. But his basic argument is that God is love, which is true. That We see that in Scripture, that God is love. And, and his conclusion of that truth is God is love, therefore God won't send anyone to hell, that no one will be in hell. In the end, uh, love will win out and everyone gets to go to heaven. That's his argument. And for Bell... God's love could not possibly include judgment because those two things just seem so polar opposite from one another. Now, if that is uh, a tension that you struggle with, the, the, the idea that, uh, that there is an eternal hell, the idea that, uh, that a holy, loving God would, uh, would still choose to send people to hell uh, after, uh, after this life is over. Like if that's a tension that you have struggled with or uh, struggled understanding, I would recommend that you read a book called Erasing Hell by Francis Chan. It's a, a solid biblical response to what Bell wrote, uh, and he just absolutely dismantles Bell's, uh, Bell's uh, unbiblical views. And I think gives a very clear, solid explanation of the gospel. So if you're gonna buy a book, uh, Erasing Hell by Francis Chan uh, would be a, a good book to read if, if that's something you want to learn more about. But let's say you have, let's say you have a solid understanding of the gospel. You understand uh, why hell, uh, because of who God is and his holiness and righteousness, you understand why that has to exist. And, and you have an understanding of the gospel in the sense of, of, uh, of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and how he demonstrated his love for us on the cross, right? Let's, let's just, I'm gonna make an assumption that most of us have that core understanding. There's still a tension in chapter one, the first seven verses of Nahum that I want to spend some time with you on. Uh, there's a tension in these verses uh, that when we read them, it feels if we don't understand the language, if we don't understand what's being described here, if we don't understand the character and nature of God, it feels inconsistent. And so I want to spend a little bit of time with you in Nahum chapter 1 in these first seven verses. I think we need to have a good answer for them. So let me read the, the verses, 
starting in chapter 2, and then we'll talk about them. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. You might have the word anger. You might have the word wrath. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great. He never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm, the billowing clouds or the dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans dry up, the rivers disappear, the lush pastures of Bashan. Remember the cows of Bashan uh, from our study? Uh, earlier this summer. These are beautiful, lush places, uh, Carmel and Bashan. The, the, the lush pastures in, in God's power and His wrath fade and dry up. The green forests of Lebanon, known for these beautiful, massive trees, wither. In His presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and its people are destroyed. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His, his rage blazes forth like fire, and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. Verse 7, the Lord is what? Good. <laughs> A strong refuge when trouble comes. He's close to those who trust in him. Verse 8 then goes back, he will sweep away his enemies in an overwhelming flood. Now the transition begins to happen in describing what God is going to do to Nineveh. So I wonder if you hear it. We read through these verses and on its face, when we first hear some of the language, some of the words being used, the description of God, it almost feels like this back and forth, like two competing views of who God is. God is a jealous and avenging God filled with wrath. Oh, but he's slow to anger. The Lord will not let the guilty go unpunished. Oh, but the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. He will make an end and bring down his wrath on his enemies. All within seven, eight verses. If this description of God creates questions in your mind, questions like, wait a minute, is God a God of love or is God a God of wrath? Well, the answer to that question is yes. I always enjoyed when my uh, seminary professor would do that. He would give uh, two questions or a question that seemed like two competing things that would collide with one another. Was it this or is it this? His answer would be yes. But if the idea of God being both a God of love and a God of wrath causes maybe confusion or maybe it causes tension within your mind, it's not because God is inconsistent in his character. It's because our view of God or our view of love has been distorted by sin. That's where the confusion comes. So what I'd like to do is try to bring some clarity to these verses in Nahum. Let's start with that first phrase. 
It may have jarred you or rattled you a little bit when you heard the first phrase, the Lord is a jealous God. You know, wait a minute. Jealousy, I thought, was a sin. Yes, if you're using the word jealousy to describe envy, then yes, jealousy is a sin. If if we're describing uh, envy or jealousy in in the sense where I desire something that you have, and I want to take it for my own, or I'm, I, I've got an attitude problem towards you because you have something that I don't, and, and that doesn't seem fair. That envious jealousy absolutely is sinful. But the jealousy of God, the word that is being described here, is a virtuous love. It's a love that wants to protect an intimate relationship. A love that does not want to share affection with something or someone that will harm that intimate relationship. It's like a jealous love between a faithful husband and a faithful wife. Listen, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem that my wife loves my children, right? I don't, I don't have a problem with that. That's totally, in fact, that's good. I'm glad my wife loves our children. I'm totally fine with the fact that my wife loves her dog. Totally fine with that. That does not bother me a bit. I absolutely would have a problem with my wife having a love relationship with some other dude in the neighborhood. I would not be okay with that. We don't have a, quote, open marriage. I will not share my wife's intimate affection with some other man. I would not be okay with it because I have a virtuous, jealous love for my wife. You go back to the Ten Commandments, there's a prohibition against idol worship in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not worship idols. And there is a reason why in the commandment God says the reason why it's not okay, he says, because I am a jealous God. God, yes, wants us to love people. It's not that God demands that we only love him and that there can be no love for anyone or anything else. That's, That's not what this is about. In fact, Jesus said what? Has he summarized the law? Has he summarized the prophets? Has he summarized all of what God expects of us? He said, what does God expect? He expects us to love God, love him with our whole self, heart, soul, and mind. And he said, and love your neighbor as yourself. So God expects us to love other people. I think it's totally fine you love your dog. I don't think God's got a problem that you love your dog or your pet. But our relationship with God is not an open marriage. God is not okay sharing our hearts with sin. God is not okay that we would share our hearts with anything that would do harm to our intimate relationship with him. You see the difference? This is why God has given us boundaries and and standards that he has set for our lives. It's not to ruin your day. It's not to ruin your fun. Those standards and boundaries are there 
to protect us from the harm of sin, but also to protect the love relationship, the intimacy with him. The Lord is a jealous God in that he has a jealous love for us. The next phrase that's interesting is that the Lord is a God of vengeance and wrath. And you hear those words, whoa, whoa, I thought those were bad things. Yes, they oftentimes are very bad things. They oftentimes, vengeance and wrath can be sinful expressions of anger. We also see here that God is slow to anger. We know that God is holy. We know that God is righteous. His anger is not selfish. His anger is not out of control like our human anger often is. His anger is rooted in love. God's love is not just expressed in the form of compassion and mercy. It is, but it's not just that. His love is also expressed in the form of justice and righteousness and holiness. And we understand this in our relationship with our children. Loving parents, good parents, love their children unconditionally. I love my kids unconditionally. There's nothing that's going to change my love for them. But good parents, loving parents, don't just let their children run wild and do whatever it is that they want. Good parents, loving parents, provide discipline. They, they provide guidance to their children. Why? Because they want to ruin their day? They want to ruin their fun? No, because they love them. Discipline is not a temporary departure from love. It's an expression of of love and God's judgment of wickedness is also not a departure from his loving nature. Love demands justice. Love cannot be passive. Love cannot be weak or unwilling to seek justice in the right way. I think the national story of Nineveh really is a perfect example of God's love. If you think about their their total story. The, the Ninevites were wicked. They, they absolutely deserved God's wrath. And yet God's love and mercy sent Jonah with a warning, with an opportunity to repent, and they repented. And God forgave. God showed mercy and, and compassion and grace. And when the next generation grew up and moved away from God, God patiently, remember we're talking 150 years go by. God patiently in love and in mercy sent another warning through the prophet Nahum. They had the opportunity to repent. They did not this time. And so God's holy justice in perfect balance with his love brought punishment upon them. And I think that's a a powerful picture of the gospel in our own lives. We've all sinned. You've sinned. I've sinned. We all deserve to be punished for our sin. We all deserve to be separated from God for all of eternity in hell. That's what we deserve. That's what our sin deserves. 
then that would be justice. But in God's love, in God's mercy, in his grace, he sent Jesus to take the penalty of our sin. It's not that sin goes unpunished. Jesus took the punishment for our sin on himself. He died the death that you and I deserve. Jesus is the one who appeased the wrath of God against our sin by being the substitute sacrifice against our sin. And his resurrection from the grave proved that his sacrifice was sufficient. So when we read the gospel as it is presented to us throughout the New Testament, the warning really hasn't changed. The warning's still the same. Repent of sin, right? That's the good news. If you repent of sin, you receive forgiveness and a right relationship with God. But if you continue in sin, if you reject a relationship with God through faith in Christ, well then, you'll receive the penalty or the penalty of sin, an eternal separation from God. This is the gospel. And it is rooted in the unconditional love of God. We see this described in 1 John chapter 4. You're probably familiar with 1 John 4.10. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. He loved us first. He made the first move. He sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to figure out how to be a better person and then send Jesus. He took the initiative. He made the first move towards us in unconditional love, knowing that many would reject him. He did it anyway. So we think about God's unconditional love in, in the lens or through the lens of the gospel. It doesn't mean, yes, God absolutely unconditionally loves us, but that does not mean that we get to just live however we want without worrying about God's judgment or God's discipline because, well, it's unconditional love. Therefore, God will never do anything to me if I step out of bounds. Unconditional love does not mean that God thinks it's cute when I sin. God loves us with a, what's it say? A jealous love. This is not an open marriage with anything that would damage our intimate relationship with God. God will act in love and in justice to protect that intimacy with us or, or to bring us back into that intimacy with him. When I read this description in Nahum, and I, and I think about God's unconditional love, and I think about his demand for holiness and justice and righteousness, and I think about how those things come together. I'm so, so thankful for the patience of God. Are you thankful for the patience of God towards you? So thankful that God's mercies are new every morning. I'm so thankful that God has not given up on me throughout the years in all of my failings. 
that even though God has not given up on us and his mercies are new every morning and he's patient, he's slow to anger, we must never mistake God's love and his grace and his patience, his eagerness to forgive. We must never mistake that for weakness or passivity over our lives. How we live our lives matters to God. Not just because he wants to spare us from the pain of sin, which he does, but also because he's a jealous God. He wants an intimate relationship with us. He doesn't want anything to compete with our hearts that would do damage to that relationship. The jealous love of God expects our devoted, faithful love in return. Again, go back to what Jesus said. What's God expect of us? He expects us to love him back with our hearts, our minds, our soul, our whole self. God does not want empty religious activity. He wants more than that. It's, and, and, and sometimes I, I wonder if, if there's just this misunderstanding or miscalculation. I'm not sure how to describe it. But there's a, a, a view of Christianity for some that's, well, I, uh, as long as I show up, I, you know, I go to the church thing, I sing the songs, put some money in that box thing back there, I do this stuff. I didn't flip anybody off on the way out of the parking lot. Like I really behaved myself today. So, uh, so I did all the stuff. I did all the stuff, God. So in exchange, what, I, what I'm expecting from you is a, is a good, problem-free week. Like there's this transactional relationship in some people's minds of what this is supposed to be like between us and God. But all that is is empty religious activity, and God wants more than that. He wants your heart. He wants my heart. He wants our love and devotion. He expects us to demonstrate our love. I've thought about that for years. And what Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love God. All right, this this is all that all God wants is for us to love him and to love others. And I've thought about that deeply for years. What, is it, what does it mean to love? Am I, is that just an emotional thing that I'm supposed to feel some type of butterflies in my stomach? And if I don't feel that, does that mean I don't really love God? What does it mean to love God? 1 John chapter 2, I think, describes it better than anything else I've seen. And maybe you've got a different way of, a a different passage that you would go to to describe God's love and and our response to him. And that's fine. This for me clarifies it. It it, it brings it into total focus of, of how do I actually love God back? 1 John 2, verse 3. We can be sure that we know him if we obey his commands. If someone claims, I know God, I know God but does not obey God's commands, that person is, listen to this, a liar and not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely, listen to this, they love him. Do you see the connection that is made between the love in our hearts for God and our desire to be obedient to him? They're directly correlated together. That's how we know we are living in him. 
I, I don't know what season of life that you would say you are in right now. I, and I, I don't know the storyline of every one of your lives and the direction that it's headed in. But here's what I do know. I do know for absolute sure that there is a final season for every one of us. Do you get what I'm saying in the metaphor? There's a final season coming for all of us. And the free preview of that final season is absolutely clear. Eternity in heaven with Jesus or eternity separated from God in hell. Like that's the free preview that the word of God has given to us about the final season of life for us and, and, and eternity. And the good news of the gospel tells us that the subscription for eternity in heaven has already been paid in full by Jesus. His sacrifice that he made for us on the cross, yes, was so that we could spend eternity with him in heaven, but listen, it's also so you and I could experience this full, abundant life right now in him in intimate relationship, a jealous love relationship with him. And so we'll start with just the, the basic gospel question. Do you need to take that step of faith in Jesus Christ as your forgiver of sin, as your savior from hell, as the leader of your life? If that needs to happen, I beg of you to, to take that step of faith today before you leave this room. If you need help, if you need clarification, if you want someone to pray with you, come talk to me, talk to Pastor Tim. Maybe there's a, a trusted Christian friend that you know is in this room that, that loves Jesus. You know they're living a Jesus-centered life and you feel comfortable talking to them. Go talk to them, ask them about how you can know for sure, about how, how you can repent of sin and trust Christ and, and, and what does that mean to follow him and live a Jesus-centered life. Pursue it. Don't leave here today without pursuing that. But for those of us who, who have, and maybe, maybe for you it's like years, like decades. For some of you, you've been a follower of Christ for decades. And you look around and, and you see, I'm sure what I see, you see our national storyline trending towards a time when God will judge the wickedness in our nation. I, I, don't, I don't know how you make an argument that we don't deserve it. As, as a nation, I, I, don't see, I don't see how you can get around the fact that as a country, as a nation, we absolutely deserve God's wrath upon us. I don't need to go down through the list. You see it. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know what season our nation may be in or if God will bring his wrath upon us and, 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 and that'll be the end. I, I don't know. Here's what I do know. I do know that as a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I, we don't have to live in fear. I don't have to live in fear. I go back to Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good. He's a refuge. He's a place of safety and peace and confidence in times of trouble. He cares for those, here's the key, who trust him. Do you trust him? 
That's the, that's the question that we need to be able to answer every day. We need to get up tomorrow morning and you turn on the news and whatever's going to be on the news is going to be on the news. I don't have a control over it. You don't have control over it. Whatever it is, is going to be. But when you and I get up in the morning, the question that we have to be able to answer is, do I trust God? Do I really trust him? Do I trust him to just the absolute chaos, upside down stuff that's happening in the world? The world is on fire. Do I trust God? The stuff that's happening in your family that is messed up. Do I trust God with it? The sorrow that, that may be weighing heavy on your heart and it feels like you can't breathe. Do you trust God? Are you running to him in times of trouble to be your refuge? Are you depending on his jealous love towards you? Whatever happens in this next season of life, your life, my life, the national storyline, I know this, we need to make sure we're on God's side. We need to make sure you me, we need to make sure that our hearts are right with God. We need to make sure that, that we're not just saying uh, this, this uh, Jesus-centered life thing as, as, as something we repeat every Sunday and, and it becomes cliche. No, we, we need to make sure that that is our daily pursuit because the days of living like we have this open marriage with God, they've got to end. I want to challenge you, take time today alone with God in prayer. Just you and God. Make sure your heart's right with him. If there's sin in your heart, if there's sin in your life that is harming that relationship with him, repent of it. Walk away from it. We need to come back to an understanding of the jealous love of God. Yes, it's unconditional. He doesn't want to share your heart with sin. He's not okay with sharing your heart with anything that will damage that relationship with him. Let's make sure our hearts are right with God this week.